Welcome to the Diversity and Inclusion on Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the American Association of Veterinary Medical Colleges Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Dr. Lisa Greenhelm, the Chief Diversity Officer here at the AAVMC. So <clears throat> today's show great topic, uh, heavy topic. So stay tuned um, and put your seatbelt on. Uh, a lot has been written about trauma in the last few years. It's kind of in some ways even become a little bit of a buzzword, right? We're all like talking about students, you know, and kind of trigger warnings and all of these types of things. But we want to get a little bit deeper into some of these discussions today. So in 2017, a team, a multi-center, multi-college team led by Dr. Elizabeth Strand at University of Tennessee, conducted a study of veterinary students and ACEs, or Adverse Childhood Experiences. Now, at that time, uh, more than 60% of participating students in that study reported having at least one ACE. Right. And um, that's fairly consistent with the general student population. Right. So um, before anybody kind of goes out there and is like veterinary students have the worst, that, that's not true. Sadly, 60% is fairly average for everyone, right? Um, but what was what I found interesting when kind of I was doing a little bit of background for this show, a more recent study out of um in 2019 found um, and it was a study on PTSD and general college students, so undergrads, mm -hmm. um, found that while only about nine percent of students kind of had a PTSD diagnosis formally, um, as many as 84% of the student population studied had exposure to potentially traumatic experiences, right? Um, and so that's a lot of students. That's a yeah. lot of students. And then when you kind of over lay all of this with kind of, you know, this notion that we have actually been living through a collective traumatic, uh, collectively traumatic event um, during the last several years with the global pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, things kind of are a little wacky out there. So now, before we kind of get to um, what a lot of adults and a lot of um, leaders sometimes do, which is the kind of um, poo-pooing the talk of trauma and triggers and going, well, back in my day, we, you know, took the one-wheeled wagon up the hill both ways to school, um, <laughs> you know, um, or we just tell people to work harder. It's really important for people to understand and appreciate that the effects of trauma actually can change the brain, right? Um, some of those kinds of things that, that are really impacted are, but aren't limited to things like difficulty learning, difficulty forming memories, um, difficulty regulating your own emotions, right? Heightened states of fear, chronic stress. I mean, it literally can just drag you down. And we all know stress can kill, right? Like that's, that's a PSA that comes on TV <laughs> during commercial breaks, right? So we know that. Um, so, you know, the big takeaway is trauma ain't fun. It's, it's just, it's not fun. It's not a good thing. And it can have really lasting impressions, right? Um, the reality is that students who have experienced acute, chronic, and complex trauma have attended, are attending, and will attend vet school. And there are better approaches to teaching, mentoring, coaching, all of these kinds of things um, um, as we meet students on their journey towards becoming a professional veterinarian. So today, I am joined by two wonderful, wonderful folks um, from the University of, of Wisconsin-Madison. Drs. Lynn Mackey and Christina Frank. Um, they're here to discuss trauma-informed teaching. And just in case you practitioners are out there like, oh, this is an academic show, don't you worry. A lot of the, what we're going to talk about today also applies in the workplace and even with your clients. You don't know who's going to walk through those doors. So welcome, Lynn and Christina. 
Thank, Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm so glad that you're here. So this show kind of came about, um, uh, Lynn kind of was on a, a call and, um, you know, she said, hey, this is an area of interest. We're starting to do some work around this. And I immediately hit that, <laughs> that, that Zoom private chat was like, hey, so I kind of want to talk more about this. So um, before we kind of really start diving deep, um, I'd like for both of you to tell us a little bit about yourselves. Um, Christina, we're going to start with you. Sure. I'm Christina. Uh, my pronouns are she, her, hers. And I have been a mental health counselor at the vet school for about seven years. So I'm a licensed professional counselor. And before I came to the vet school, I worked at an outpatient clinic um, that worked with survivors of trauma. So both children, teens, and adults, and then families who experience trauma together. So that's a little bit of my background coming in. Great. Awesome. Wonderful. And Lynn. Yes, excellent. Um, so I'm super lucky to work with Christina on a daily basis. So Lynn Mackey, uh, I use she, her pronouns. And my role is as the Associate Dean for Student Academic Affairs here at Wisconsin. I've been in this role, I guess it's around 11 years this month, which um, feels really weird. Um, but I've worked throughout my entire career in higher education. So I've worked with um, professional adult learners and certainly seen how trauma shows up, um, whether it's in my office or it's in a laboratory or it's in a clinical setting. Um, and so that that's how I came to it personally, or I guess professionally, why it was interesting to me. Um, and then doing some of my own personal professional development as well. But Christina and I talk about this stuff all the time and think about how do we create a more inclusive learning environment. And I think that this is an area, especially as you said, Lisa, with our collective trauma um, societally with um, the pandemic, but also racial injustice and violence um, in the last handful of years. Yeah. Um, but we also know that there are individual traumas that our students are coming to us yeah. with and experience with their students, and we will have further students in the future. And we also know our staff and faculty also, unfortunately, have this experience given the prevalence of trauma. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even, you know, even in the context just of the, the pandemic, at the very beginning, I remember when we were kind of going into lockdowns and there was a lot of concern because, you know, we expected um, domestic violence numbers to go up. We expected, you know, some drug use to go up. We expected all of these things. What we didn't expect is that, you know, it would take us a couple of years to get back into the office and that we were kind of stuck in that space. So, so let us kind of start at the beginning. Christina, what is trauma? Can you define it for us? Sure. So, you know, if we're looking at kind of our the therapist diagnostic manual in how they define trauma, you know, they look at really anything that's um, your life feels threatened or you're witnessing someone, someone else threatened in that way. So that could be, um, you know, some sort of assault, Recently, in this new in this new version, they added you know sexual trauma um, that could be learning about a death, witnessing about a death, serious injury. So sometimes, and I'll let Lynn kind of share this piece too. We talk about big T trauma, which is like car accidents, death, um, assaults, and then we sometimes talk about little T trauma. And little T trauma isn't meant to diminish that. Those are the things that are sometimes missing in that kind of diagnostic area, which could be like um, a breakup. It could be homelessness, having a parent incarcerated, um, things like that. Even a pet loss can like count as that. So we really we think about trauma as anything that overwhelms our ability to cope and starts to interfere negatively in our functioning. So it does look different for every person. At least, like you said, I think in the beginning of this conversation, you know, not everyone's going to qualify for PTSD and that kind of loss of control. Uh, powerlessness, helplessness, those are kind of those markers of trauma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Lynn, did you have anything you wanted to add? Absolutely. Um, so you you hit all the big pieces um, that I was going to share. And, and as you're sharing this, and I know we talked a little bit about at the beginning how we were going to have like a really difficult conversation as you were sharing some of those things, I kind of felt it in my stomach, like, oh, yeah. And so we know you know, we didn't say this explicitly, but we also know that some of you who are watching live or, or watching the recording later, if you need to step away at any point or or pause it, walk away, give yourself time, give yourself space. Um, but it was interesting, even as I'm prepared for this today and we have 
looked at questions ahead of time. And I think about this all the time. I even, as you're talking about those um, examples of trauma, Christina, and that definition, I still felt it in my body. And so we know that that happens for learners in the classroom. Yeah. 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 So Lynn, then, you know, as you kind of were chatting on that Zoom, maybe about a month and a half ago, when we kind of started talking about this, what is trauma-informed teaching? Kind of just the big overview. Yeah. So when we think about some of the principles of trauma-informed care, so this is something that we see quite a bit in mental health counseling or in physical health counseling, um, thinking about when I go to see my physician, how she will share with me what is going to happen and gets my buy-in prior to us moving forward with things. So it is really a way of being or a lens in which um, a provider or an instructor or a teacher has these principles or this lens that they work through to avoid or to reduce the incidence of re-triggering a learner or a person's trauma that they had in the past. So for example, thinking about how maybe someone who had a traumatic event that happened to them in the past, um, one really easy example could be saying, hey, I prior to me shutting off the lights, I want to let you know, I'm going to stand up, I'm going to shut the door, I'm going to turn down the lights so that we can view um, these images on the screen to together. I'm thinking about a, a veterinary medical example of we're going to look at this image for radiology or imaging. And by me saying what I'm going to do ahead of time, that learner or that trainee is not... Um, we're reducing the risk of them being triggered by my quick movement or the lights going out all of a sudden or things changing very quickly. So it's reducing that um, that opportunity, I guess, for uh, re-traumatization or, or triggering that trauma. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we didn't, um, I didn't include this in the questions, but exactly what is a trigger? What is a trigger? Like, I mean, like, like what does it do, right? <laughs> Yeah. 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 So I might say a trigger is a is uh it can be a sound, it can be a smell, it can be even like a season, can be a an image, a discussion that reminds you and takes you back to that traumatic experience. It's kind of how I yeah. understand it. Yeah. And in in terms of like the thinking brain, when we are triggered, we talk about with kids, we flip our lid. So your thinking brain, when we're triggered, our thinking brain goes offline and we're just reacting with like our emotional brain, yeah. right? So that means that we're not able, we're not in a learning state. We're not able to, yeah, like, I don't know, learn about anatomy yeah. when we are in a triggered state, right? It's just our emotional brain that's taken over. Yeah, yeah. So more stuff down in that brainstem. Yes. Kind of yes. thing, right? That fight, fight or freeze kind of stuff, right? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what data do we actually have? on vet students and trauma. You want to start, Christina, or you want me you to? You go ahead. You go ahead. Not <laughs> <Okay. go in. laughs> so, so we were going to talk first a little bit about some of the information that you shared yeah, um, yeah, right at the beginning, um, Lisa. So there's not a, a lot of very specific information about veterinary medical students and trauma, but we do know that 2017 study with Dr. Strand and, and Dr. Chan and a number of other faculty and staff from across the U.S. Um, so we know about that. We also know that that um, document that you shared or some of those statistics that you shared from 2019 about what college students, so the majority, um, I think it was 60 to 89% of people beginning college undergraduate education have experienced at least one trauma prior to coming to the undergraduate um, institution, which that is hard to hear yeah, and think yeah, about yeah. that. And then thinking about how our female identifying students are three times more likely to experience trauma, um, particularly in that undergraduate time. And so when we think about our veterinary medical students and that cohort of adult learners, they've gone through undergraduate work are at Wisconsin and I think nationally, predominantly female identifying students. And so we're not even talking about other social identities and, and other ways in which students show up, but just thinking about those big picture um, statistics, we know that that is present in our classrooms and it's present in our school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Christina? Yeah, was, you know, it's kind of one of those sad things that, you know, Dr. Chun and other leaders found that ACEs aren't, those adverse childhood experiences aren't different for veteran students compared to the general population. And, you know, if the general population has 
if 85% to 90% have at least one experience with trauma, we know that it's in our classrooms. Yeah. 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 So, you know, I, I mean, this is something I think that that when we talk about well-being, when we talk about, um, you know, kind of how do we make things more accessible? How do we um, create academic environments that, you know, um, instill kind of good well-being practices and all of these types of things? Just folks we don't necessarily always talk about the fact that this is kind of running along in the background operating system, totally. <laughs> right. And that we're all bringing this and that's that like this data is like, okay, one for the majority of students. And yep. that's just starting at one. Some of them have a lot more. And then, you know, and I, I am very, very transparent with permission. So I do, but I mean, I'm transparent about, you know, being an adoptive parent of a college age student. She's aged and we're still trying to get her back in there. But, um, but, you know, as an adoptive parent, this is something that I had to learn a lot about quick, fast and in a hurry. And that the reality is one (laughs) is almost unique. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, one, a singular traumatic experience is typically unique. If you have one, you know, it usually brings friends. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or frenemies, if you will. Or frenemies. Yes. <laughs> right. Right. So, so, you know, in thinking about traumatic kind of traumatic academic environments, what are some of those things that can make it um, you know, difficult for students with a history of of trauma. What are some of those characteristics? Then you go ahead and I'll fill in. Okay. Okay. I was just going to say, you know, I think something that Christina tells me, and I I remember this a lot, is because we can't assume. And so I don't know what may be triggering or way, what traumatic event may be in a person's or events or experiences may be in someone's um, background. But I think specifically in a learning environment, we know that our students are learning new information. It's fast paced. It's stressful. There are sometimes unclear or changing. So it may be unclear to the learner, but it may be changing because of the way in which practice occurs, learning environment or clinical environment. And we know in a learning environment, sometimes um, learners have, and this happens in K-12, this happens in higher education, having little or no control over what it is that they're learning at that time. And so that can also be really difficult um, for a learner. And then also, I think sometimes knowing that there can be some secondary or vicarious trauma um, exposure in a learning environment, um, and it's and it's important for our students to see some of these images, learn about some disease states, learn about some of these topics. It's really important as part of their development as a um, excellent veterinarian, but it's also can be really really hard. Um, if they have this background or they are triggered and unable to learn in that way. So sometimes it's those images or those um, cases or those descriptions that can also make it really difficult in the learning environment. When we know, you know, I think also kind of sad, but sometimes when our trauma is linked to the person who's supposed to, you know, if it's an adult who's supposed to take care of us growing up, uh, then there is going to be more distrust of authority figures. And there's a lot of those in academia. And so, you know, <laughs> trauma, being trauma-informed is also kind of being mindful of how you are with your students um, and kind of being mindful of a little bit of that dynamic, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> academia is full of bosses, right? Like, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So I can see how that would be challenging. You know, I think that the other thing, and I think it's important to even kind of help people kind of get some examples. And I'm going to use race as an example, um, because this is a diversity podcast. Um, (laughs) But things like, you know, um, oftentimes I do get, I get messages, I'm sure you both hear messages like, oh my goodness, there were these microaggressions. And oftentimes we're like, oh, well, it was micro, it was a paper cut. And I'm like, yeah, but if it was the seventh, there was a paper cut. (laughs) 
that's 700 injuries, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, and after maybe the second one, it's old, it gets old, yeah. and, um, you know, and at some point it becomes really, really challenging to deal with. Right. Um, also there's these kind of the way in which people react. So I think a lot about the summer of 2020, with um, George Floyd, right? Mm-hmm. And and why that particular extrajudicial murder took so, I mean, it just really blew up, right? Um, and it was because we were home and it was because a lot of people saw those videos, but black and brown people see those videos often mm-hmm. to the point where sometimes it's desensitizing um, and sometimes it's just, it's so traumatic over and over and over again. I made my own commitment years ago to say, I'm not watching those anymore. Not, not because I don't feel a responsibility to bear witness because I think that that's yeah. important as well, but because I've had enough snuff videos, yeah. I'm not watching anymore. <laughs> I know what it looks like and it's very painful to watch. Right. Yeah. But keep in mind that like, our students have also grown up in an era where this is the consumption of similar videos have been there around almost their entire life. Mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, there's been more, more research coming out and Lynn knows I feel kind of passionately about this, um, the idea of that intergenerational transmission of trauma. So, you know, yeah, certain groups have experienced historical, historical and current oppression there is more research coming out about how that gets passed down through generations, yeah. not just like environmentally and how we interact, but through our, through our DNA. Yeah. Right? So that is the important link between certain, you know, people with marginalized identities and being trauma informed. Yes. So yes. We know it's passed down too. epigenetics. We, yes. I mean, we kind of joke in some communities and African-American community, when we see one person run, we all run. Mm-hmm. Right. And we joke about that. But that is behavior that's, that's, I mean, it's just embedded in the DNA. Like, we don't know why. We now know why. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You run Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you ask questions later, right? But no, people need to understand that that's actually a trauma response. Yes. Yeah, there was um, an article that I just read maybe a month ago that talked about mothers who had been exposed to the Holocaust and they like yeah. checked their their blood levels and found that the DNA, I think that was related to their stress response, mm-hmm. was changed, and that their children who had been exposed to the Holocaust, their DNA was also changed. Yeah. So yeah, we, we do see it in multiple yeah. ways. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, um, as we also think about more diversity, we're also mm-hmm. gonna have this epigenetic issue. Um, kind of playing a role in this as well, where, you know, you, yeah, sure, you might have that one ace, but you've also got this generational baggage of stuff that have happened to people that look like you or believe like you or whatever. And that's come into the classroom too. Mm -hmm. Right. That's coming to the classroom too. And so, um, so what should our teaching practices look like to kind of you know, in in ways that kind of consider this and think about this as a backdrop on learning. Lynn? You know, Christina, is okay if I start and then you fill in? Because I think that um, we'll we'll come at it from different Mm -hmm. perspectives. So I think from, from my first perspective, I think for any teacher, any instructor, any faculty member, or anyone in a perceived or named position of power should be learning about trauma-informed teaching, trauma-informed care, that way of being. Um, they should learn about what it looks like, depending on where they're at in their knowledge and their journey there. Then really look at themselves, um, not necessarily bring that and tell everyone in the classroom that, always um, 110%, but um, recognizing where they are in that process of, of learning. Um, learn about their students, uh, learn about different ways of how they show how students show up in the classroom, having empathy for students, not making assumptions that this student probably has this background and this student probably has that background, but assuming that there is trauma present given the data that we talked about earlier in the in the um, in the talk. Um, I think also recognizing that um, there are very small things that can be done to ensure that words are intentional. 
um, that images are intentional, uh, that there are appropriate trigger warnings that are thoughtful and that aren't the, um, that are really earnest and genuine Mm -hmm. trigger warnings. And that really, truly it is students do feel like they can um, leave the classroom if they need to without punity, um, that they can walk into a different space or that they can have an accommodation for missing a certain lecture and then being able to still learn the content in a way that they can still um, advance in their knowledge as a veterinarian and practice their skill, but is in a way that they are not triggered in that moment. So I think those are a couple of the things that I'm thinking about when you ask that question. Um, yeah. Christina? Yeah. Um, you know, I think why we want to consider it is just that really our goal in veterinary medicine is that our students learn. Um, so that I, I guess that would be my plug for why this is important, because if our students are triggered, their brains aren't available for learning. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 So in the classroom, you gave an example of, hey, I'm going to go turn off the light and we're going to see we're going to look at these images. Hello, anatomy class um, yeah. <laughs> with the animals on them. Um, so, you know, what are maybe some other types of examples yeah. So, I mean, Linda, I'm yeah. sure. If, and I, yeah. So I, I was thinking about this more uh, yesterday, actually, because I was talking with my partner and he was like, I don't know, you know, sometimes this feels very up here and how, and what are some examples that we can give people to think about? Yeah. Um. So I would think about the example I thought about was with like oncology. So, you know, we're talking about cancer. We can guess that in this classroom, someone has been touched by cancer, whether it's themselves, a loved one, a loved one of a loved one. So it might look like if I'm teaching the class, I come in very calm, um, so I'm not adding stress to an already stressful topic, right? So how I am as a faculty, I come in calm, and then I say, you know, we're going to talk about this. This might be a hard topic for some of you to hear about and learn about, so I'd invite you to take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, this part's kind of important, too. While I'm presenting the content, I think sometimes there's a pull to make to lighten the mood or to make things seem less serious. We don't need to do that all the time. You know, we can just present it respectfully and thoughtfully. We don't need to make it lighter or we don't need to try to make people feel more comfortable because that's probably going to backfire on us. Um, And then in the end, when I'm wrapping up my discussion of cancer treatment, I might say something like this could have been, you know, I'm not going to be able to guess who has had, if this was impacting someone, please come talk to me after class. I have resources to connect you with someone if this was hard to talk about, you know, so kind of that beforehand being thoughtful during, and then that afterwards of here are some, some yeah. resources yeah. and foreshadowing. Here's what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Lynn, do you have thoughts? Lisa, can I ask, can I yeah. share another example? Sure, please. I was thinking about, um, I was thinking about an example um, where a faculty member came to me and said, you know, I, and this was a while ago. And so I'm not going to share too many specifics, but the person said, I know I am talking about this topic. And this topic that I'm talking about is about veterinary medicine and animal development. But I know that it is also something that could be perceived as talking about human development. And so I want to make sure that my language is inclusive. I want to make sure that... um, I am using respectful language that is not going to um, offend a student or hurt a student or potentially uh, trigger a student by a microaggression or a bias or hateful comment. And so that faculty member very much went out of their way to make sure that when they were talking about this um I can't even remember which animal it was or, or what piece, but it was about chromosomal chromosomal sex development in an animal. And they said, you know, I know that I know this piece of it, but I, I know that I am, there's a meta conversation happening at the same time. And I've heard other stories in the past about how when people then trip over their language, they're not as intentional about how they're going to talk about the actual topic and then the meta topic when they trip kind of like that lightening the mood or making a joke, but when they trip, then sometimes that student who maybe has a personal experience or someone they love has that experience with misgendering or other types of um, 
bias against queer persons, really that person is no longer engaged in learning. And that person is not going to be able to engage in that classroom, probably at least for the rest of the day. And what a loss in in moment in learning for, for our profession, but also for our learning communities. Hmm. Well, Lisa, I think you're muted, yeah. We lost you. And also the things that, you know, um, that, that might be that student, but here's the thing, like at that point, students have made friends, they might have shared personal vignettes as a part of those relationships. And so not only is kind of like this moment happening and they're triggered, but like other people know that they're triggered. Yeah. <laughs> right. So mm-hmm. which just makes it feel more public, it makes it feel more icky. And yeah. it does, like when you say that, you know, it kind of maybe makes that student shut down for the rest of the day. Like, you know, then you've also got other students who want to comfort that student because they genuinely care, right? And they're really concerned. They know, they knew the moment it happened, like, oh my goodness, like during the next break, I need to go talk to so-and-so, right? So you've lost them too. <laughs> And that's like that secondary trauma piece, right? You've lost, you, you've lost yeah. like a crowd of five off yeah. the top, yeah. right? Just because you tripped. And it's unfortunate and it's not necessarily intentional, but that is the actual impact. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, Christina, I really also appreciated, um, you know, the example that you gave. And I think that it's also um, incredibly relevant to folks that are out in practice, right? So you have this, you know, this um, um, diagnosis and like related, like it's okay. It it doesn't take a lot to be like, okay, so this is what it also looks like in human medicine. um, And you may have heard of it before. Like in human medicine, you might know that like the the recovery rate is the, this is what it is here, right? Like you kind of have to kind of integrate this information (laughs) so that, you know, People feel like they're informed, but they're also not, I mean, that's a huge diagnosis to get, right? Whether it's your pet, your sister, your cousin, yourself, um, it's a huge diagnosis. And and so, you know, figuring, thinking about how to deliver that. And I know that that's also, you know, Christina, yet another burden, (laughs) you know, that veterinarians have to do all the time, but that is a part of the job. So, you know, yeah. Yeah. We're going to, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Yeah. You know, I think that's where that, that kind of trauma informed lens in practice yes. can be really useful, right? Remembering oh, the person coming in probably has their own assumptions or their own experiences about what this diagnosis looks like and being able to say, you know, what do you know about this? Let me share how this looks different in animals or let me share how this treatment might look different and then pausing right as you're talking about to give them time and space to have their own emotional reactions yeah and checking in on that yeah yeah how do we make space for this in vet schools when everything is you know and we also are in this time where like I said, we're we're on the tail end of this collective global traumatic event, and yet we don't actually acknowledge it as such. How do we make space for this? Which is not in that was not in the question deck, people. And yet, <laughs> but here it is, right? How do we make space for this? Because it's such an abstract kind of thing that has a very real yeah. impact. Well, actually, I mean, it fits with. Yeah, it fits with actually what we were thinking about for barriers, right? Maybe Mm. what might get in the way of people uh, thinking about trauma-informed lens is that this is going to take too much time or this is too uh, burdensome. Mm -hmm. And Lynn, I want you to jump in too. um, Thinking about that, this is really just one place you can start that won't take any extra time is just how you are, right? So making sure that you are calm, that you are regulated, and that you think about yeah, that you just think about the prevalence of trauma. That's one great place to start, right? And that's not going to take any extra time to think about, um, to have that kind of in the back of your mind and to think about how am I presenting so I don't add chaos to a chaotic environment. Lynn, what would you add? Well, Christina, you also um, talked a little bit yesterday when we were prepping for this, you talked a little bit about how, um, oh goodness, the the thought just left. (laughs) 
Um, it happens. Oh, oh, about how, yes, it, it is an additional thing to think about, but if we are intentional and thoughtful about it ahead of yeah. time, it actually takes less time because yeah. you're not having to work through what the chaos created in the classroom or that uh-huh. re-traumatization of a, per- of a learner in that space or the re-traumatization of a client in your, your, your waiting room or in your exam room. And so in a reality, it's mm-hmm. kind of just putting in the time and intention on the front end and it can take away some of that back end time too. Yeah. And the other thing I would add to that too, is that it it might actually, you know, I don't know if there's any research on this, uh, but it might actually be a helpful way to reduce burnout and compassion fatigue. If we have our lens on of this person might be reacting from a place of trauma, we're probably less likely to take their, their behavior, their anger, or whatever that looks like personally, right? If we're able to kind of have that lens of this might be out of a place of trauma, I'm not going to, I'm going to, of course, think about what I can do differently. And I'm not going to take it as personally and try to have more empathy for that. So it might actually help with burnout. Having yeah. That well, you know, you said a word that <laughs> it didn't trigger me, but it did trigger a memory. It didn't mm-hmm. trigger me emotionally, but it did. Like we make space for how to deal with reactive animals mm-hmm. that are not humans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yep. <laughs> we make space for that. Like that's what that that's squarely in the veterinary space, right? Um, and and yet we don't seem to understand that those same type of reactivity behaviors manifest with people. Like, okay, so I'm not going to bite you. <laughs> I was actually picturing in my head, I'd like to be wrapped up like a burrito to cat. Yes, oh. right. But this is also things like why weighted blankets became yes. so popular. Yeah. And, you know, during the pandemic, I got my daughter and I like those that the hug tube thing, like, mm-hmm. you know, all, like, yeah, we were really into that stuff during <laughs> the height of the pandemic. We spent a lot of money on like stress, <laughs> like relieving kind of things, because again, like, it's not just, you know, this like lack of learning and all of these things. For some folks, this really manifests somatically mm-hmm. as well. Right. So uh, again, my wonderful daughter, and I talk with permission, so let's, I, I want to be clear about that. But like a lot of her anxiety manifests um, somatically, right? Which was made it very difficult for us to get an actual quality, good, truly believable anxiety um, um, diagnosis because it was like, I have a stomach ache. And I'm like, I, I feed her. I don't know what to do, <laughs> right? But again, people are kind of bringing this stuff and, and again, animals bring it too, right? And usually it's because something happened. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Lisa, you talking about that and, and you talking about the anxiety piece, but also we know trauma also, um, Un, unchecked trauma and Christina, please correct me or, or check in with things. Unchecked trauma or untreated trauma, I should say, um, will often develop more into some depression or anxiety and those symptoms coming up. And so oftentimes that can coexist that depression. And, and we know that that is prevalent in our veterinary medical students and in our, in the profession as well. So both anxiety, depression, um, and some of that, um, yeah. shows up. And we know it and we see it and we hear it and feel it as well. Yeah, I would say, you know, even just anecdotally, sometimes when students come in with pretty heightened symptoms of depression, lots of times as you start to hear more, there typically is some trauma underneath it too. Um, So yeah, I feel like in vet med, we talk a lot about, uh, you know, depression and suicide ideation, and we might be missing that piece of trauma and how that comes out differently. Yeah. So other barriers, so we know like, you know, oh it's going to be very time consuming. Oh, you know, but then there is the crowd. We still love the crowd that is like by the bootstraps with the one wheel wagon. Like, how do we deal with that? You know, in DEI, a lot of times people are like, oh, don't worry. (laughs) They will, you know, move on at some point. And I'm like, yeah, but the damage is done at that point. And they've also coached other people to engage in those behaviors. So like, how do we deal with that? Yeah. Anybody got a solution? <laughs> no. I mean, we're we're we are a community of scientists and we're a community of educators. And the data 
shows us that the trauma is present. In addition to that, the the neuroscience research shows us what happens to brains and functioning when trauma is triggered or re-traumatization occurs. And so we know the learning is not happening. So to me, that is the biggest piece. Um, Our students are engaged in attaining their dream and their goal of becoming a veterinarian and whatever that means. And if they're not able to engage that's a huge missed opportunity for us within the school, but also for the profession. Um, And so that to me is where I first start of the, that's the reason why it can't hurt. It can't hurt to be trauma-informed. Yeah. 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 There definitely seems to be, I think, a worry that faculty will sometimes say of, you know, wanting, like, are they going to be prepared to go out and practice? You know, are we, are we being too gentle? And I think just echoing what you both have said, you know, the data is there that students aren't available for learning if they're triggered. And that's, that's our job is to help them learn. Yeah. Yeah. Getting them ready for practice. Yeah. Um, So we've kind of talked a little bit about the social justice aspect here, but, but um, you know, trauma-informed pedagogy does clearly have a pretty strong social justice component element to it. And I'd like to kind of hear your thoughts, um, you know, on that, that kind of intersection of DEI and trauma. We've talked a little bit about kind of, you know, watching these videos. We talked about the epigenetics, but just in a really con- other concrete ways, you know, I'd certainly love to hear your thoughts on kind of what that social justice element can also look like. Yeah, Lynn, you had another good example of this that we talked about yesterday. You wanna? Yeah, that's nice of you to say it was a good example. <laughs> I'll, I'll go to that in just a second, but I guess um, also speaking to what when Lisa was talking about this, um, I started thinking about how in K twelve education we know that in schools that um, adopt or or integrate a trauma informed lens into their teaching, we know that. Um, test scores, um, the the racial um, test score gap mm-hmm. between the black and brown children and white children decreases, um, not enough in my opinion, but it does help to address some of those, um, those external metrics. And so when we think it works in K-12 education, of course, it's going to continue to work in higher education as well. Yeah. So thinking yeah. about we know, as we were talking about right before the podcast started, we know that um, test scores of standardized exams, whether at the higher ed, uh, at the undergraduate level or in veterinary medicine, those test scores sometimes come come down lower when there is a presence of a trauma of the last three to four years of our lives with the pandemic. And what does that look like when we see that drop? Because people's brains are not working in the same way. They are not available for learning and encoding that knowledge and consolidating that knowledge and then retrieving it and applying it in that area. So I think about that. Yeah. Lynn is is so polite and I love that. So let me just go ahead and like, we were talking about the mic drop moments on the podcast, like <laughs> cough, cough, Navly, cough, cough, like, <laughs> let's, let's name it. Thank <laughs> right? you for naming and it. All of this, like, ah, oh, the Navly scores, why are the Navly scores? And I'm like, because they were going to school in the middle of a pandemic. I don't know. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. It, you know, did they drop? Yes. Is it the end of the world? No. Do we expect those scores to resume at some such time when life isn't as traumatic. I don't know when that's going to be, maybe, but cough, cough, Navly. Yeah, it's going to be tomorrow, Lisa. Tomorrow, everything is going to be perfect again. I just thought I would share that with you. Um, The other piece, (laughs) sorry, a little tongue in cheek here. Um, (laughs) Another piece of it, and this is one of the examples we were talking about was, you know, we're talking about, um, violence and hate, um, and also thinking about discrimination and thinking about, you know, I talked a little bit about um, kind of uh, what would happen in a a content about this, but the meta content is about this. And Mm -hmm. so I think sometimes, um, you know, even just the, and it's not even just, it's a big deal, but misgendering a student or misgendering a person, um, misgendering or using a dead name, um, and how, what a huge impact that can have both on individual and collective safety, Mm -hmm. um, but also in terms of what that does for that person in the learning environment in that moment, 
And I, there are people who leave entire learning environments or institutions or workplaces as a result of these seemingly smaller micro or, or described as smaller right. microaggressions, but in reality, they are not micro to the person experiencing them. And so that's where I see the intersectionality between uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion and social justice and trauma-informed teaching. Yeah. yeah, the other thing that I would add, um, and this will be in some of the resources we share, there was a study done that showed that um, Black female undergrad students who experienced trauma before they came to college were more likely to drop out in their second year. And then they showed, interestingly, like an intervention for this is having more like community and social support. So that does, I think, show that we do need to recognize that it is different for students who come from marginalized backgrounds. Like it is different. And we do need to kind of think about how can we have, how can we partner with them and give them the support that data shows is going to help them stay in school. Yeah. And, you know, I'd also want to just kind of um, mention the, there was a a workshop that uh, Dr. Mackenzie Peterson and I did in 2022 at um, AAVMC Catalyze, the, the March what was used to be called the March meeting or annual conference about even essay prompts, right? And how, you know, we were really kind of starting to become concerned about the ways in which these prompts were developed because essentially, you know, what, hey, we want to know about, you know, your lived experience, your diverse background, which now we're back to that. But thanks to, thank you, SCOTUS, um, but <laughs> because it just, we just go around in circles or, you know, tell us about, you know, well-being and da, 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 da. And, and in some ways we had kind of gotten to this place and it's not unique to vet med, but we've gotten to this place where we're asking people to kind of trade on their trauma to get into grad school yeah. or, um, you know, or undergrad. And I'm like, this is not okay. Asking people about lived experience is one thing, but we need to make sure that we're not asking them to disclose terrible, awful, no good thing, things that happen to them, you know, because it's, I mean, you're just literally like, opening a wound to get in a vet school really <laughs> that's not okay yeah so, so that's yeah. yeah that's like a really important part of being trauma-informed right is giving voice and choice too so yeah. you know I think I'm, I could maybe see some people watching that listening to the podcast watching the stream thinking I'm I'm gonna go I'm gonna start having hard conversations with people that's awesome and we still want to give people a choice of when they share what when yeah. they share kind of their personal experience yeah we don't need yeah. to force that yeah, yeah. and yeah. and you don't get to grade it either yes <laughs> don't grade it don't evaluate it yeah i'm not going to put feedback on the document no feedback. feedback like oh no you're going to use the comment here while you were telling us about the worst possible day of your life like no like yeah. this is not okay right <laughs> all right so as we wrap up what recommendations uh, do you have for folks that just kind of want to get started? You've given some um, along the way, you know, well-written um, intentional trigger warnings that aren't like, you know, tongue-in-cheek, not, you know, but but really kind of meaningful things that are easy to incorporate. I think the other thing I would um, suggest would be if you have on your university um, campus or within your CVM, if you have mental health care providers either embedded in your CVM or on campus and or our university health services at Wisconsin has wonderful documents about trauma-informed teaching. And so a lot of universities are recognizing this and have been for a long time, but it is becoming much more um, integrated into the undergraduate and veterinary medical and graduate and medical experience as well. And so using the resources that are on campus as well, that's where Christina and I started working with a faculty member in the School of Social Work um, in 2017. And so really trying to integrate things like that. Um, I think reaching out, having seminars within your, your CVM for faculty and staff, really low risk things where people can have honest conversations to practice with each other, to learn before they start implementing things in a classroom to ensure that it's done in a way that is not re-traumatizing or hurtful or harmful to anyone. Great. Yeah. Any other things? Any any parting words, Christina? Oh, gosh. Honestly, you know, um, it might feel like a lot of pressure and stressful figuring this out. Um, and we all are human. We're all going to like 
we're all going to make mistakes as we're trying to figure it out. And I think, um, you know, doing some of that self-work first and like doing some of your self-work first. So how am I with students? Maybe where am I more reactionary that I can work on? You know, that, that actually is going to be important. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the other thing I guess I will um, end with is, um, you know, so much of um, post-secondary education teaching is, hey, you go, you learn this discipline through and through, and then they put you in a classroom with 100 people mm-hmm. <laughs> and you're supposed to just figure it out. Um, you know, there is, um, there's a humility that's also needed to recognize what it would come um, that, you know, there are, there are great educators who have a knack for things, but the reality is great educators are made, they're not born, right? And so, um, and so, you know, it's okay to go get some of that professional development on just pedagogy in general um, and, and, and then trauma-informed pedagogy as well. Um, because I think that it's it's um, something that um, all of higher ed really kind of struggles with because of the way educators are created, right? Like literally you go, you do your PhD and then they literally throw you in a room with a bunch of people and expect that you know what you're supposed to do. And that's, um, typically not a part of the PhD yeah. <laughs> training program. <laughs> so, yeah. So hopefully yeah. 10 years from now, that will be. Yes, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully. Any parting words from my guest this evening? Thanks for having us, Lisa. Well, yeah, thanks for making space for the conversation. Yeah, thank you. Thank you both. This is a this is a um an area of personal passion for me um, and something I do think about a lot um, in my own home life, but, and has, and it certainly informed um, my DEI work over, over time as well. And so um, thank you both uh, for being on the show. Lynn, thank you so much for bringing it up on uh, that zoom call and, and, and um, positively responding to my like immediate (laughs) request, like, hello, I'd like to do this. So thank you. Thank you both for for um you know joining us and if you have any resources we will certainly include those in the show notes so thank you shout out to university of wisconsin yay (laughs) thank you you so much am i supposed to do this yeah that's right (laughs) okay (laughs) so this has been another episode of avmc's diversity and inclusion on air to my guests uh lynn and christina thank you so much again for joining me today um be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app um if you are watching on youtube just hit that little bell in the corner um and be sure to look out for new shows coming soon again thanks so much to my guests and thanks for watching Thank you.